You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Medical Center, and this is a very special episode. Right now, I'm at Digestive Disease Week in San Diego, California, and I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Sandy Werness from the Global Autoimmune Institute. Welcome, Sandy. Hi, Vanessa. Glad to be here. We are enjoying the beautiful sunny weather out here right now, and we are also joined by Dr. Jocelyn Sylvester from Boston Children's Hospital, who is going to sit with us today and talk about some of the interesting topics that have come up at Digestive Disease Week. Welcome, Jocelyn. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I want to start with the session yesterday that was led by Dr. Peter Green from Columbia University. Um, This is a quote that I wrote down in my notebook immediately uh, because I found it to be something really interesting. Dr. Green said, Patients deserve to have a medication. And I sort of stopped in my tracks when he said that because for me, I've been diagnosed 15 years and have really thought that the gluten-free diet was this awesome thing that, you know, I didn't have to take medicine. I didn't have to have surgery. I didn't have to get shots. I just had to eat a a diet that was good for me. So to hear one of the top researchers say that was, was new for me. So Jocelyn, what did he mean by this? Why do we deserve a medication? Well, I think it's a good question because on the one hand, maybe not having medication is better, but the question is, does a gluten-free diet work? And a diet, a treatment is, is good if it works, and whether it's a medication or a diet is secondary. And I think what we've been learning increasingly is that a gluten-free diet works, but perhaps doesn't work well enough and certainly doesn't work for everybody. And so this is where there's probably a role for a medication. What problems have you seen with uh, a gluten-free diet? So I think the most basic problem is it's hard to follow. And so people who are on a gluten-free diet recognize that it's socially difficult, it's practically difficult, it can be expensive, it's not easy, and even when you do your best, gluten is everywhere, and gluten may sneak in, and it's probably an inevitability, which means that a gluten-free diet still has some gluten. So these medications that these companies are working on, are they medications that are going to replace the gluten-free diet? So that's the really interesting thing is that there's different options. You know, do you have an adjunct therapy, something you do in addition to the gluten-free diet, or do you have an alternative therapy to the gluten-free diet? And I think although we talk a lot about how a gluten-free diet is difficult and certainly challenging, it's felt to be a relatively safe treatment. And when we think of medications, we always worry about what are the unintended effects. And so one of the challenges in making a medication for celiac disease is it can't be as good as a gluten-free diet. It has to be better than a gluten-free diet. Or it has to make a gluten-free diet better. And currently, there are several medications in the pipeline that address both of those questions. So how would they work? So some of these medications that are something to have in addition to a gluten-free diet, this is really where the idea of having could you have some, an enzyme, some sort of pill you take that cuts the gluten up so that then it doesn't show up and stimulate your immune system anymore? That type of medication is definitely something where there's different options. How does that work? So the idea here is that people with celiac disease respond to a very specific part of gluten. And this amino acid sequence, it's kind of like amino acids are like the Lego building blocks for making a protein. And so if you have all the building blocks put together, you can recognize it. But if you take those building blocks apart, then you just see a bunch of Lego building blocks and you don't see gluten anymore. 
And so what enzymes do is they take those label blocks, label blocks apart so that there's no gluten anymore, even though you ate the gluten. And so that's the hope is that they'll allow you to eat gluten. In reality, it'll probably be small amounts of gluten. So this isn't really seen as a necessarily a replacement for a gluten-free diet, but perhaps it has a role because there's some situations that are more high risk than others. So for instance, going out to a restaurant or when somebody's prepared food and it's not your own home and you're not really sure. These are opportunities where having a little extra as an insurance plan, as a backup, <clears throat> might be helpful. So Dr. Green pointed out a few really interesting things during his session. One, he said that in their, their serving of their patients, that 75% of them said that they wanted a medical therapy because they weren't satisfied with the gluten-free diet, which I found to be much, much higher than, than I expected. But then I started thinking about it for my, like in my own life. So I'm a, a grown-up, a, a mom, and I don't find the gluten-free diet to be that challenging at home. But on the road, you know, we're all traveling, we're away from home, and it's more difficult to, to plan ahead, to find restaurants that are going to do it perfectly so that we don't get contamination. We've already talked about people getting sick this trip from you know, eating tacos. You know, so, yeah, maybe it would help if we could know that coming to a work conference or going on vacation that we could could really help ourselves not have those, those you know, days where we're stuck in a hotel room um, not feeling well. But then I also think about it for my five-year-old son and how scared he is to, to be exposed to gluten. He hates throwing up. He hates that feeling. He's so afraid. And that knowing that I could give him something that would alleviate that fear is, is really exciting to me. So when I think about it that way in a more practical way, it's like, yeah, only 75% of people want this. You know, <laughs> I think everybody should want to have a, um, a medical therapy. And I think you make a really good point there because a gluten-free diet doesn't fit everybody all the time. Right. I think it's a great point because there's so much pressure and uh, stress for family members who have a gluten uh, a celiac uh, child <clears throat> because, um, you know, at me as a celiac mom, or, uh, mom of a celiac daughter, uh, my life was uh, has been so incredibly stressful, worrying about every single crumb, every single moment, every every social event, every sort of setting in which there's food. And if I were able to give my child a, a medication that would protect her, it would it would change my life personally. And I think that's a really good point. We when we talk about treatments, the there's really two things that happen with treatments. One is mortality, because everything can, tell you, can kill you. And with the gluten-free diet, that's not the most big problem. The problem is morbidity, which is there's consequences and side effects of having the treatment. And definitely anxiety, worry, stress is one of those things. And definitely we hear consistently from our patients with celiac disease that they don't do things or they don't want to do things because they're worried about how their gluten-free diet will interfere with that or if they can maintain their gluten-free diet. Absolutely. So during the session yesterday, Dr. Green pointed out four reasons why he thought patients should have a medication. The first, which we've talked about, was to assist with the gluten-free diet, um, the, the notion of hopefully eventually replacing the gluten-free diet altogether. But then the third and fourth reasons were a cure and to prevent celiac. So I want to talk about number three and number four. What's the difference between curing it and preventing it? That's a very good question. So. The a cure is when you have a disease and you make the disease completely go away. Preventing is when you say, all right, we know that people with certain genetics are at risk of getting celiac disease. And if 
these people with these genetics, we can give them some treatment that prevents them from getting celiac disease, then that's a preventative therapy. Kind of like for vaccinations, we give people vaccinations to prevent them from getting a disease. We don't give them the vaccine actually after they already have measles or mumps. Or... So I want to clear up some confusion around the whole celiac vaccine um, that's in development right now. So, you know, we hear of a vaccine, and I think about how you just described, that you give it to somebody to prevent them from contracting something. But they're looking at this vaccine in terms of helping to treat people who currently have celiac. So how does that work? So, or are we using the wrong term altogether? I think, I think it's a great question, and I think it really gets down to what are we trying to achieve. So if we think about the measles case, what we're doing is we're trying to get people the ability to recognize something and activate the immune system and attack so that they get, it, that they get rid of the measles before they get really sick. When we think of celiac disease, we're doing the opposite thing. So what we're trying to do is we have these people who are already sensitized to gluten that are mounting an attack when they have gluten, and we're trying to turn the attack off. And so one of the terms that's used in the celiac disease treatment world is the idea of a tolerogenic therapy. Because when we talk about the immune system, we often talk about tolerance, which is why you know, we don't react to our own livers, but if you get somebody else's liver, you might not tolerate it. And so how can we train people with celiac disease to tolerate gluten? Very well said. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, now I'm like excited about this. <laughs> you know, could I actually, you know, eat a regular croissant to get in my lifetime? Maybe. I definitely think that there's people who are working on making that regular croissant a reality. <laughs> I know I would appreciate that. <laughs> so the other thing that I found interesting at this conference is just the discussion about, you know, we talk about seeing a dietitian or a nutritionist as being like, what people need to do, but how few people are actually doing that. How can we be better about be getting these patients to see a dietitian and do the gluten-free diet better? Well, I think that's a great question, and I think there's two answers. One is very specific to the United States, because in the United States, the seeing a dietitian is really only covered for very specific indications, and that doesn't include celiac disease. And so one of the things that, particularly in the United States, the celiac disease community needs to work on is making celiac disease a reason that insurance has to pay for you to be allowed to see a dietitian because that's a treatment for celiac disease. Right. And so I think a big barrier is cost and it not being covered by insurance. Another barrier is the same barrier as all of time, which is time. And also, I think it's interesting in celiac disease because there's this feeling that people learn the gluten-free diet, and now they know the gluten-free diet. But that's kind of like saying you've got a smartphone, and you know how to use a smartphone, and you haven't learned anything different or have any new ways to use your smartphone since you got it. And we know that the gluten-free diet is evolving, and things get tweaked and changed, and that's why it's important to check in, but not everybody does, certainly. Do you think that having a medication is going to change how we feel about patients seeing a dietitian or how they feel about seeing a dietitian if there's medicine to take? I think it depends what type of medicine it is. I think if it's a medicine that is something that you take as an insurance policy in addition to a gluten-free diet, then you still need the gluten-free diet. So now... To all of our listeners, we're at a conference, and so you know we have the benefit that some of the world's best experts can just pop into the room, and we're really lucky that Dr. Benny Kersner has popped into the room and would like to comment. Okay, I, I would add one thing about the diet that I think has become really important. Sorry. 
we, we always thought that a gluten-free diet was a healthy diet. I was taught that when I was at medical school. It's a great diet. You should just get onto it. I think one of the things we've learned is that it's not a well-balanced diet. And so where we're using the nutritionist is not so much at the start of the gluten-free diet because we have wonderful educational facilities to get that underway. But three months after being on the diet and beyond that, we insist on going to the dietitian. Not so much for compliance, but to say, in addition, you've got to eat healthy. And too much of what's available has got a high fat content, has a high sugar content, has been made delectable in ways that are not necessarily appropriate. And I think that's a very good point, and I think it's very important to remember that that's probably true about the entire food ecosystem that we live in. And I know there's been lots of studies vilifying gluten-free diets, but I think just like one can choose to eat a highly processed, high-fat, high-sugar, gluten-containing diet, or one can choose to eat a plant-based, low-fat, gluten-containing diet, you can do the same with a gluten-free diet. And I think it's really important to remember that, as you say, it's about making sure you meet your nutritional needs. And certainly, there's reasons to see a dietitian other than just simply thinking about is there gluten in the diet or not, and that's a really important thing. So I want to jump to another session that um, Dr. Kurzer and I attended yesterday, looking at psychologists in GI. This wasn't specifically about celiac disease, but more about just GI in general and the need for, for psychologists. You know, we're really lucky in DC that we have philanthropy that supports a full-time psychologist seeing all of our patients, but that's not a reality at most celiac clinics around the country. Do you think this is something that's necessary, and should we be really looking to get a, a psychologist or a social worker into these clinics to work with families? Absolutely. I think what's really unique about celiac disease is it's one of only a very few conditions where really it's very much managed by the patient. But it's not actually managed by the patient. It's managed by the community because it's the village that feeds the patient. And so really having emotional support, having community support, and having these types of supports, I would argue, is perhaps more important for celiac disease than almost any other condition. It's particularly important that people's feelings uh, about their illness and about their diet and coping with it are validated and understood and that they don't feel alone and they, and they feel a part of many who are experiencing exactly the same feelings. And um, so I, I'm, I think you're absolutely right. It's really critical. Yeah. I would add to that very frequently we encounter families where they feel things are going great and therefore don't want to entertain seeing a psychologist which unfortunately still carries a somewhat negative connotation for too many people and it becomes really important to talk about your child's and adolescents going into a new social milieu and I like to talk about the beer and pizza time in life and what it means as you engage in that through your college career or as you advance, and what support you might need outside of your parents to prepare for that. So I, I, I'm convinced, and it's very interesting, when we look at the patients who return to clinic, and we look for the reasons why they're actually coming back, and all of us experience the fact that most celiac patients tend to fall off and not return to clinic. The ones that are returning are returning for emotional support, more so than returning for medical 
Absolutely. Well, I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in today. We are running out of time because we have to get back into the convention center to get to the celiac panel discussion this morning. But this is just the first of several podcasts that Sandy and I will be doing from Digestive Disease Week. So as soon as this goes live, please tweet us. Please email us your questions at celiac at childrensnational.org. And Sandy and I will go find the experts to answer them for you. Stay tuned. Absolutely. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and we'll talk to you again shortly.